Hey there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about trading magic items in your D&D games. Can you buy them? Can you sell them? Can you start up a hedge fund? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. <laughs> uh, Dan, how, how, did this, how did this topic come up? What, what, what inspired this? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that because um, we we had an earlier episode on uh, trading and mercantilism in D and D games, and 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 Paul and I did that episode, and we we're like, this is the kind of thing that we are interested in. Probably nobody else is really going to care about it, and it's one of our most popular episodes. <laughs> and and so we were we were thinking about like you know that does actually you know is a topic that interests us. And so a couple of weeks back, we were looking for things to talk about. And I asked Paul, Paul, do you, you know, should we talk about trading magic items? And Paul's response was never, no way. Don't allow it. It doesn't happen in my games. Nothing to talk about the end. I'm like, okay, that's unusually, uh, unusually robust uh, thesis. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've been in Paul's games and I have definitely purchased, I have totally purchased potions and scrolls. So what's up with that? There is something yep. we need to investigate. Yep. And that's where this show yep. came from. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's funny. I remember I remember having that conversation because I was like, yeah, I was a little worried that I just wasn't going to have that much to say because I'm like, I just don't allow it. I just don't do it. Um, but I realized I kind of have drawn a line between consumables, like you said, potions and, and scrolls and uh -huh. everything else. And, uh -huh. uh, and, and when you get into scrolls in particular, that gets into a much thornier conversation about like how do you roll out spells to your wizards in mm -hmm. the game, right? Yep. How do wizards learn yep. new spells? I know newer editions like it's it's just rolled into leveling. You know, characters mm -hmm. just get immediately get access to new spells every level. Um, that's not what I'm used to in old school gaming. I'm used to like good luck, go find some spells. Um, so I don't know. Uh, that aside, I think we're going to try and I'm going to try and sidestep that topic because that's probably a whole other conversation. Um, it might be tied into wanna, it. I feel like yeah, that's yeah, that's important. Wanna... And and like like Paul just said, I in my last game, I totally had wizard characters who leveled up, and there were no spells available for their highest spell level. I'm like, ah, ha, ha, you didn't, you know, what are you going to do about that now? But you know, it's an interesting and it's a, it's an interesting topic because it's one of these. You know the the magic shop issue is one of these things that has been have really ping ponged around in different editions of D D. They've gone yes, they've gone no, they've gone maybe, they've gone we recommend it, we don't recommend it, and it tends to be very lightly touched upon uh, sometimes about whether that's the intention for core D D or not. And different editors have flip flopped back and forth about it. So it's an interesting, I guess, yeah. proud nail or point of pain in the game about whether that should be should be allowed or not. It's fascinating. There was uh, the, the, the thing I remember most strongly of it, the, the historical moment that I think really cemented in my mind that I don't like it. Um, it's early 90s. 
Uh, I'm playing uh, second edition AD&D a lot. And I had gone to like my first couple of Gen Cons ever and gotten involved in playing some of the, um, uh, some of the organized play at the time, which I think they called Living City. I, I want to say they called it Living City or Living Greyhawk yeah. or some living, yeah. living something. Yeah, Living anyway. Greyhawk started 2000. I think Living City was earlier. Yeah, I think it was Living City. And um, yeah, so so the thing is that they had kind of formalized the value of magic items for that, for the purposes of that system. Yeah. They had formalized yep. the value of magic items so that they could be more easily traded. And there was an, an issue of Polyhedron magazine that came out that I that I was receiving at the time I had a subscription to Polyhedron uh, as, a, as a valid RPGA member. I had the pin, all that. <laughs> um, and I remember an article coming out about like, you know, so-and-so's magic shop. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a, it was a, it was just sort of like your typical thing you see in Dragon Magazine or whatever. That's like just describing a little background of here's, you know, this character, he's got a magic shop in the living city, blah, blah, blah. And then it went heavy into like, here's the price of all the magic items. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, I remember that article coming out and digging through that and then being excited to include that in my games and, and then like, you know, adding actual magic shops and, I did not like the impact that had on my games at the time. I'll put it that way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't. It, yeah. it really felt like it robbed the mystery of magic items. Like they just became a commodity, and yep. And it was. I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. And likewise, I think uh, in that same uh, in that same vein, uh, mm -hmm. the so in short, right. Um, that was not, you know, buying and selling uh, magic items was not built into the zero edition rules. Mm -hmm. And then they had big, long, comprehensive tables in the first edition AD&D rules. Every single magic item had a sale price attached. And then that was taken out in second edition. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, so Dave Cook came through in second edition. And it, to a large part, that's pretty much a copy paste of the rules from first edition, but he very carefully sliced out all the sale values in second edition. And then it came back in third. And then in third, every yep. single uh, item in the game has a specific sale yep. price. And it specifically says in the book. And, and so what I remember but, is that if you make a, a character in third edition, just exactly like Paul just said, you are allowed to pick any magic item for a particular price point at that level. And I had a roommate at the time that I introduced to D&D at a slightly higher level. And he spent a whole week optimizing the, the initial magic item purchases for his character. And I felt so bad. I felt so bad. And he was sitting there with a spreadsheet that somebody else had developed, pinging that I could buy this, but I could buy that. I could get a better armor. I could get a better weapon. He spent a whole week optimizing. And I felt so bad about that. And it, that's yeah. what made me not want that kind of uh, open open access in my game either. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's here's an interesting, here's a couple of interesting comments going going through uh, on, on the chat right now. So I'm just going to share a couple of things. Please. Um, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Julian directed right at me, Paul, would you still feel that way if the shop had only scrolls and potions? Um, and I just want to relatedly add in William's comment who said, well, any old alchemist can make a potion, but you need wizards and dragon's blood and a full moon to make fancy stuff. Um, so here's, here's my thought. Here's my thought. I, I feel like 
um, you know, it, it, what bothers me is when it becomes just that sort of commodity, right? When it becomes like a go going to right. the grocery store or the drugstore right, or whatever, right, right, like right. then it's boring. Right. If right. the shop has lots of character and there are lots of like arcane ritual and rules around it, like I start to feel better about it. Um, okay. and I'll tell you specifically yeah. how potions and scrolls made it back into my campaign. Um, in my campaign that I started around 2010, I started with um, uh, L1, uh, the Secret of Bone Hill. And so I have the town of Restonford and basically I have the whole town detailed. That was my starting point. That was my base camp for my players. And um, in if you've read L1, you notice that there's uh, a major wizard in there, Peltar the Sorcerer, and he has three um, apprentices who are also detailed, who are somewhere. And, th and there's even an inn that points out that like this is where they like to hang out. And um, my players were looking for, especially my wizard players, my magic users, were trying to find ways to add more spells to their spell book. And so they talked to Peltar and they asked, like, do you have any magic scrolls that we can use to scribe scrolls to our, to our spell book? And I thought about it and I kind of thought, you know what, it would make sense if Peltar's apprentices occasionally scribe scrolls as just part of their apprenticeship. Like, that's, that's how they train, maybe, to become wizards. So I said, okay, I'll sell scrolls, but I'm going to limit it in these ways. I'm going to say, one, uh, no higher spell level than third level, because that's about, at, like, like once you get to Fireball territory, it feels like this magic should be much more rare to me. And so I'm like, mm, maybe if you're very, very lucky, they might have a Fireball, probably not. And, and I ramped the price that way, too. Like, the first level spells, pretty trivial. Not too expensive. Second level spells, more than double that. And the third level spells, like, crazy expensive. Okay. Um, and then I also randomized stock. So anytime they came and talked to them, I was like, well, let's see what they made over the past month. And I would roll dice for it. And I would just use, I would actually use Dan's uh, Book of Spells, <laughs> which conveniently, in the, in the table of contents, there are numbers next to all the spells, so they can be mm -hmm, rolled upon mm -hmm. with dice. And so That's I would roll, there. and I can't, I can't remember, I think it was, uh, I would roll like a D6 for the number of first level spells that they had, and like a D3 for the number of second level spells, and maybe something like a, you know, a D0 to 1 for what third level spells they had. And, I like it. And then I, w and then I would randomize which spells they actually were. So I like it. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I did. Um, it worked and, well at yeah. being on the player side of that. And, um, and I, I, I definitely, I definitely like, you know, not having full access to the whole list. Right. Yeah. So if yep. it was, if you had the entire list in the book, be like, you can just pick anything off this, like it's a menu. I liked having limited access and having it be, randomized from week to week what was available then it felt special and it felt like you're going through a record store and you're finding a little treasure there um and for me i i again really liked having this limited access that you had to hunt hunt for over time yeah, yeah. no i did have through play in that same campaign i had players come at me with i specifically want this specific magic item i had a, a player who was playing a halfling thief who was angry at the fact that he didn't have dark vision or, or infravision or whatever, you know, low light vision that the elves and dwarves had. Uh, he's like, I'm a thief. I should be able to move around in the dark. I really want a magic item that will let me see in the dark. And so we just started talking to NPCs about it. We would ask Peltar or ask other, you know, random NPCs, right. have you ever heard of a magic item that lets you see in the dark? 
And one, I'm like, that doesn't sound like a very powerful magic item, so I don't feel too bad about introducing that to the game. And two, I like that he was interacting with the world and talking to the NPCs. So I started looking through the adventures I had, and I was like, let me find a random, okay, uh, here's a dungeon that's, that they haven't visited yet. I'm going to chuck a magic item in there that is a hat that grants you infravision, and then I'm going to make up a legend about it. Yep. Oh, yes, I heard that the ancient Amorians did make such a device. And possibly if you visit the ruins, an um, ancient Amorian ruin, maybe you would find one. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the way that my heart goes, is like, here, yeah. here's an opportunity for an adventure. Right. Someone, someone right. wants something in the game, well, then that want is the, your perfect hook into actual adventuring. So my, my right. attitude has also generally been like the price. There's a price, and the price is you got to go on an adventure. And it's funny because not everybody feels the same way, right? I've had, mm -hmm. I've had some players like groan at that, like, oh, why is it all, why do I have to go adventuring? Um, and <laughs> why do right, I have to play some, this game some, at all? Right. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe I was doing a bad, bad job of uh, of presenting it or something like that. But that's what it seemed to come off as. Or maybe they were play acting, and I just it didn't get through my OCD. I don't know. Um, but you know, some people do. Their 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 instinct is that there should be uh, magic shops or uh, auction houses, and so you know, the magic shop is a sufficiently well known trope in. D&D type fantasy at this point that it's all over the place. I, I just happened to go to my uh, my my weekly Sunday Oglyph cartoon this morning, and it happened to occur in a magic shop, as a matter of fact, that was selling potions. Um, yep. And uh, we can't put the uh, comic up uh, on screen in our uh, our episode, but you can go find the find the Glamour Aid. I love Oglyph myself. It's the Glamour Aid episode. And things don't turn out as well as you'd think to begin with. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there is a there is a potion shop, and that's you know part of a lot of people's expectations for a fantasy world. Um, uh, you might want. I, I'm interested in. Um, I mean, again, a couple of great comments there. I'm interested in William's uh, second to last comment, uh, where he figures there must be a map market for magic items. Go ahead, just read it out to us, Dan. So William says, I figure there must be a market for magic items, but it is more like rare art and the collectibles world. They go for sale at auctions, probably secret auctions that you never heard of and need an invite. And it's interesting that William says that because that's pretty much exactly what is suggested currently in the fifth edition D&D uh, DMs guide. And in fact, mm -hmm. let me just look here. So I'm looking at that section under the possibility of buying and selling. And on the one hand, the fifth edition rules nowadays, they suggest their, their first, their initial suggestion is unless you decide your campaign works otherwise, most magic items are so rare they aren't available for purchase. And the next, uh, the next paragraph says, uh, in a large city with an academy of magic, this, this might be an option. And it says, um, if your world includes a large number of adventurers engaged in retrieving ancient magic items, trade in those items might be more common, even so, it's likely to remain similar to the market for fine art in the real world with invitation-only auctions and a tendency to attract thieves. Um, how do you feel about that, Paul? How do you feel about this? Yeah, right. I mean, I mean it sounds like you're you're stepping, you're slowly stepping towards and leaning into the like, and and now this is an adventure. And now this is a whole session where we role play stuff out okay. and yeah, something right. goes awry, okay. right? You okay. you bid on yep. a thing, you go and you pay for it, and then when you go to pick it up, right. it gets stolen. Like that's that sounds great to me. Like, yeah, yeah, let's 
you know, okay. I, that's the, I, I think that's it. Liz, the way I want my players to pay for magic items is through play, right? Not through just yeah. deduct coins off their character sheet. I want them to have to work for it and like go through an adventure and establish and make the world richer as a, as a result. That's, That's what I want. But what about, uh, so, you know, a, a little while back, uh, Joshua reminded us about uh, Dave Hargrave's Arduin Grimoire, where there is a multiversal <laughs> trading company outpost down the dungeon. So if you find the right place in your mega dungeon, there is a general buying and selling and trading in the dungeon itself. And of course, that also harkens back to um, my understanding of uh, Gygax's castle Greyhawk is that there was a post of guardian elves right outside the entrance to the dungeons, and I believe mm -hmm. to get to get out, you had to pay a toll of a magic item every time you came out. I believe, Jeez. which is kind of interesting because it because on the one hand, some people say that you know early games were really super stingy, but on the other hand, there must have been enough magic floating around that the party could dependably get one or more yeah. items per yeah. session. Yeah. So here's, I mean, an interesting thing that we're, we're bordering into here is one of the, one of the cases more recently where this came up for me is in playing a fifth edition campaign. Now, uh, interesting points about this campaign is it was long running with a group of many GMs. So we were in fact taking it in turns to who was the GM, right? And I had recently gone on a tirade about, um, about the fifth edition rule for attunement. I specifically don't yes, like the attuning right, rule. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. And so I was like, let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of attunement. I hate it. It's dumb. But the thing is, it does, it is attempting, though I think poorly, to solve a problem, which is players carrying on way too many magic items uh, mm -hmm. and just being able to have and be able to trade them across with each other uh, willy nilly. And just again, it, right. it kind of yeah. gets down to like treating them like a commodity right. rather than, you know, right. amazing artifacts that they're meant to be. Um, so. Um, so the, so I was like, let's get rid of attunement. And that's fine if you have exactly one GM with their hand firmly on the throttle of, of how frequently yeah. and how much and what kinds of magic items are being handed out. And yeah. it turns out if you just get rid of that rule and you're in a rotating GM game and different GMs will have different opinions and how many magic items should be in the game. Yep. And suddenly right. our game yep. was flooded with them. Suddenly our game was flooded with them and players had way too many and they were able to just use them and trade them amongst each other and magic items became boring. Fascinating. Fascinating. And, oh, I, I hadn't known how that came out, Paul. I'm so glad you told me yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kinda I'm not I'm I'm kinda on the fence about attunement these days where I'm like, I still don't like it as a rule. I still don't think it's very good. Uh it's right. inelegant, but it is solving a problem. Right. And I don't have a better solution for that problem other than just, you know, be a hard ass. Which is, is fine. It pure, you I mean, it, it's, ass, it's funny because that because that's a fifth edition innovation. Um, attunement. That yeah. that yeah. yeah, attunement was was not a thing that was in any edition zero one two three four basic bx anything, and I'm like I'm, I'm surprised that like why did I not see this as a problem before? Like why I never felt like I was lacking a rule for that in prior editions, and I'm surprised like why didn't this feel like a necessary thing to clamp down on players sharing magic items before? Um, I'm kind of at a lot. Did I just not have enough items in my game that that was an issue or something like that? I don't know. I don't know. Certainly, you know, fifth edition ramps up. Um, oh, geez. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
was going to say fifth edition ramps up the 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 variety of magic items. I'm not sure that's actually true, but fifth edition certainly has more character abilities, right? You're, 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 you have a lot yeah, more different right. classes with a lot of different yeah. more abilities coming to them, and I think fifth edition wants to focus on those more and kind of step away yeah. from the magic yeah. items. Whereas I do yeah. feel like in in old school D and D, especially at high level, I think your character right. does start to get defined by what magic items they own. True, it, uh, undeniable. Um, I think uh, you know uh, original D and D fighters had no abilities, no abilities yep. except hitting a bunch of times if you're if against one hit die opponents. And in fact, it's you know this the the original D and D block for fighters is exactly one paragraph, and it says their primary ability is to use any kind of weapon based uh, magic item. And a lot of people would argue that that specifically keys into the intelligent. Uh, special ability swords rules that Dave Arneson wrote because fighters are the only type that can use those swords. And so in most of our classic games, your characters were largely identified by what kind of magic items they had later on. Um, totally true. You know, I'll say this. Okay, I, I saw an interesting little little side tangent here. I saw an interesting anecdote on, on D&D Twitter the other day about a DM who had was making custom magic items uh, mm -hmm. was a little bit worried about this issue about freely sharing them. So they made one magic item that just totally absorbed all damaging spells. It, so any, like targeted spells, area spells, no problem. The person yes. wearing it, totally immune, no rolls whatsoever. Hmm. Now, what mm -hmm. he didn't tell the players is that he was tracking how many points it had absorbed over time. Okay. And uh, at some later date when they were in the city, someone, another character said, well, I'm going to go do something risky. Can you hand me that item that just absorbs all the magic? And what the DM had never, what they never found out, and I guess they, if they'd scanned it for a curse, they would uh -huh. have gotten clues, but they never found out that when you take it off, all the damage comes back right then. <laughs> That's brilliant. And That's the city funny. got nuked. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. <laughs> And the whole city oh, just went up in a mushroom God. cloud. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> now, that's, what are the chances that that's going to show up in a fifth edition core book? None, right? That is yeah. not something that they're going to want to have. That's, that's completely off the rails and is really, really has to be like a custom, unique thing that your campaign is okay with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, that's one thing that, that used that used to happen actually is the the very first supplement to original D and D the Greyhawk is most of the magic items are actually cursed versions of the original magic items in the little brown book the whole the all the items in Greyhawk are actually just cursed cursed twisted versions of the things that you wanted so that once upon a time that used to be the response is if things get out of hand then you start handing out curses and destructive stuff um again that's not something I mean, that you maybe like in a tournament situation you can't depend on i mean so so here's let me let me just read from you from the fifth edition dmg here's here's a little blurb they say about attunement when they're talking about specifically about inventing your own magic items and whether or not they should require attunement uh the advice is decide whether an item requires a character to be attuned to it uh, to use his properties. Use these rules of thumb to help you decide. If having all the characters in a party pass an item around to gain its lasting benefit would be disruptive, the item should require attunement. 
If the item grants a bonus that other items also grant, it's a good idea to require attunement so the characters don't try to collect too many of those items. So they're trying to solve stacking and they're trying to solve okay. pass okay. around. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now, personally, I never, the, one of my biggest gripes about attunement is that it is a backdoor to identification. Um, and then, like, so just by attuning, ah. I now know all the properties of the magic item. And oh. I don't like that. I like, I like, I like, I, I like the moment in old school games, especially, especially with players who are more used to newer stuff where they say, oh, here's a mad, this ring, I've detected magic on this, this, these boots. How do I find out what they do? And the answer is put them on. <laughs> <laughs> They're never right? comfortable with that. They're always like, wait, really? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Right. Put them on. All right. Nothing happens. Um, Jump up and down, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yes. right. Now we're playing D and D. They should be uncomfortable. Yes. See, I'm from discomfort in my D and D. That's what I'm used to. That's yeah. what. That's how yeah. I came into D and D. That's how I'm going out. Highly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, it's interesting with the attunement because uh, a couple comments back there. Williams' first thought was, uh, he said, "I feel <laughs> like they took attunement from the Ring of Regeneration." or something in prior editions, uh, there was a rule you had to wear it for a day to keep people from trading it around to yep. heal up. And as soon as Paul says attunement, Ring of Regeneration is also the first thing that pops into my head. Uh, what edition did that no. special rule come in with? Because that is that is not in original or first edition. So now I'm wondering what, what edition, what the, which the, rule, the, the regeneration ring. ring. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Did, no. did, at some point they I attached you. it just for that. I did have a Ring of Regeneration in my campaign, and it's funny because right. I also worried about uh, how it was going to be used. And I personally enjoyed rather that I wanted the players to share it around. I made it a yes, you can absolutely share it around, no problems. I just changed this form factor from a ring to a very flimsy crown made out of twigs <laughs> and branches and shit. So it was like very delicate. And I was like, you know, Fireball, definitely going to destroy this. You know, wear it on your head while in combat, probably going to get destroyed, right? And they were super <laughs> paranoid about it. It was great. They, they built custom boxes oh, to carry nice. it around in. And yeah, they, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed all the ridiculous play that I, that I got. So, so yeah, that's another piece of advice, I guess, of like play with the form factor of your magic items. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it, then that comes into like, should they be more destructible, frankly? Um, yeah. But that's, we'll leave that for another discussion sure, uh, sure. in general. But those are things that, um, you know, those are things that, that work great in a campaign. And then again, depending on how, how important the convention tournament system seems in the particular era, right? Things get twisted around in order to support <laughs> people coming to the table with a higher level character with a specific number of magic items. And then I would say probably third edition is where they went the most overboard uh, in that late nineties, early two thousands era. Mm. So let me put you on the spot. Paul. So, okay. and I feel like, so obviously there's a difference between buying and selling mm -hmm. and um, it's a little bit hazy, but at least if you look at um, first edition, uh, what it seems to be saying there is that you can sell items freely. It never gives any support for buying magic items. So there's the is buying it, and there's the selling factors possibly separate. Is this based purely on just that it's assigning value? Is that what you're getting at? 
Well, um, um, I'm like, like, like is, is, is buy, do buying and selling have different uh, statuses in your campaign? Um, mm. And then and then I'll say, you know, third edition had prices for all the items and you could buy them for one value and you could sell them for half that. And then fourth edition had values for all the items and you could mm. buy them for this and you could sell them for one fifth of that Jeez. of that number. Um, <clears throat> and then in, in fifth edition, you don't get prices for the magic items. Yep. But let me let, let me put you on the spot and and talk potions. Are you okay. pro buying? Are you, okay, are you pro buying potions in the game? Um, so it, my my opinion on this has changed when some jerk removed clerics from my game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when that happened, I realized I had to allow for the buying of healing potions. Otherwise, we were in trouble. Uh, I so, do yeah. the same thing uh, <laughs> due, to, <laughs> due to someone that I know very well removing clerics from my game as well. So I sympathize, Paul. And uh, for what it's worth, I, I have had now and I have it, you know, in my campaign, I had that in a specific place. So there's a particular character in a particular place that did actually was an alchemist. OK, mm -hmm. and frankly, as as we pointed out in the books of all along, they've said, you know, alchemist characters can make magic potions. They've had that forever. So I feel like an alchemy shop is is right in the text and always has been. And so I've always had um, potions of healing available in my game for a value of 200. Um, and then maybe there's some extra stuff. Maybe there's some extra unexpected stuff in the potion, in the in the weird hermit witch at the side of the village who's, who's selling that stuff. That's worked super well in my games. And it's been a good way of extracting uh, cash from the players actually. It's been one of the, the like one of the primary things is can you can you um, support your monthly expenses plus your your healing potions? Yeah, and yeah. there now, have been are you, you know, are you selling are you selling only healing potions or are you selling other kinds of potions as well? Uh, could, mostly healing potions, but you know can be other maybe surprising types. I also have like an anti poison, like a cure mm -hmm. a cure a, a remove poison right uh, potion that's more expensive, and then maybe you know and I've offered them love potions. And they come into the shop like, can I interest you in? Can I interest you in a nice love potion? You're like, nope, nope, that's not what we're here for. <laughs> um, but you're not offering, say, potions of fire breath or flying or invisibility, uh, anything like that. I probably should. I haven't. Those particular ones haven't come up. I probably should. Similar to your scrolls, like maybe I should. I should be rolling and having a little bit more variety from day to day. Not, you know, they're they're, they're definitely not come in and buy a barrel of invisibility potion at, at, at will. Yeah. Yeah. If I was really good about it, what I would do is um, I would, I would let players sell stuff and I would track who they sold what, and then just recirculate that stuff. I feel like if I was just more on top of my note taking, uh, that's, yeah. that's what I would do. Uh, I've definitely delighted in moments in the campaign where the players have asked a sage, Hey, we've heard of this strange location. Do you have any maps of it or to it? And the sage gladly sells it to them. And then I hand back to them maps either made by them earlier in the campaign or <laughs> maps made by other player groups. And I go, here you go. Here you go. Don't you wish you had made better maps? <laughs> Remember that other character who died there? Yep, he had a map on him. It made it back here. Here you go. Wow, that's great. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I love fantastic. that. I love that. So 
I, w- I mean, I and that's that's what I think of when I think of selling uh, selling stuff, right? Like, like let's say a player for whatever reason is like, oh, we found this great wand of fireballs and we don't want it for some reason, or we want the cash, we're going to sell it. Well, my head's immediately going to go to like, well, who's going to buy it? And are you going to be happy that that person now has a wand of fireballs? Maybe not. <laughs> well, okay. So let me talk. Let, let, so so scrolls. So yeah, yeah, you're yeah, clearly cool. okay with occasionally players buying scrolls because mm-hmm. uh, I've done that uh, in your well, that's, game. That, and that goes back to that goes back to your favorite uh, Holmes Basic D and D, right? In Holmes Basic, there was a rule there. I think about what it costs to scribe a scroll, right? I think it, I, I want to recall that it tells you exactly the cost and time and money to scribe a scroll. Um, well, the yeah. the cost is right out of original D and D, right? And in okay. fact. In fact, I have an image prepared for that, Paul. So if you want okay, to pull right, up, right. if you want to pull up, so for what it's worth, if you look in the uh, the, the very first book, the very first original D and D book that is equivalent, little little booklet that's equivalent to uh, the player's handbook, uh, it describes magic users. You get one single paragraph about magic users, and it's like magic users they can't use weapons, they can use a dagger, they get spells, and they at a higher level can craft their own magic items. And then, and then it rolls, and then, so this is like literally the second paragraph about Wizards in the game is here's the cost to create magic items. And I think, Paul, you are looking at basically that first line that for 100 gold pieces per spell, you can make a scroll of spells, and that's copied directly into Holmes Basic. Yeah. Now, the thing that I want to press you on is that in original D&D, to, to be able to craft magic items, you had to be enormously high level. What that text there says is you need to be wizard class, which means 11th level. You need to be 11th level before you can even make a potion of healing or a scroll mm. of spells. Uh, Holmes has, is famous for saying that uh, uh, wizard characters can make scrolls, not anything else, just scrolls, even starting at first level. Yep, yep. And that's, that's I where I ended that. up with on my on my okay. Peltar's apprentices making scrolls. Okay. was like, well, okay. uh, you know. He says they can do it. Uh, it seems like a good way to practice. And then I, I have layers upon layers on top of that of like other expenses and limitations on how many scrolls you can copy into your spellbook. Gotcha. Uh, you know, gotcha, gotcha. Ch- chances to learn the spell and you know needing to wait to level up to do it to try it again when you fail and stuff like that. And and of course, I assume scrolls are always destroyed the moment you do anything with them, whether it's read it off or try to scribe it. Right. Right. So yes, I'm a hard ass about that. If you try to scribe a scroll into your spellbook and fail, uh, the scroll is still gone. Good for you. That's yeah. the way it ought to be. Yeah. This is the way, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, it's that's all risky. You're... Yeah, yeah. But I, I was wondering that because um, I don't think in because um, normally I feel like you're normally looking at Moldvay BX or something like that, and that it's interesting because that rule is not in there, yeah, uh, to true. my knowledge. Um, so, so really, the only the only rule set that allowed that at first level was either Holmes Basic, and then and, uh, third edition, and then third edition yeah. brought it back, and you yeah. could scribe yeah. scrolls at first level. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind. I like I like uh, I like making uh, I like I like magic users making scrolls. I like using it as a as a way that they're maybe going to make a little money between each other by by trading and selling them. Uh, I like it as a buffer between the like, can I borrow your spell book? Because like. No, of course yeah, you can't borrow right. my spell book, right. right? Like that's like no, but maybe I'll scribe right. a scroll for you. Um, yeah, no, okay. I think that's a really. I'm I'm so glad you said that, and you said at the top of the episode, obviously. And I feel like that's 
I need to work that more into my games because that because the the problem of uh, how do wizards acquire new spells? Honestly, I've been too stingy about yeah. scrolls in the dungeon, and it kind of hurt. Um, it kind of hurt my game a little bit. And then as as we were talking about uh, before the show started, then suddenly the players find a spell book. <clears throat> And then it's it's a Niagara Falls of new spells, and then all of a sudden they get yeah. like a dozen all at once, yep. and that yep. book gets passed around, and everybody winds up with the same spells. And yep. I would be better off, uh, I think, in my game if I gave them in smaller chunks of scrolls. And frankly, the, you know, the the big mistake I make is that I'm rolling random treasure for a dungeon, and frequently I'll confess I roll scroll, and I go, "That's boring. I'm going to roll something else." But mm-hmm. if I do that too much, all of a sudden I've removed the main opportunity for wizards to get new spells. Yep. Yep. That's a mistake yep. I've made. I I mean, I might encourage to uh, possibly, uh, when you get to that point, say, that's boring. What else is also there? Keep the scroll. Add something. Oh, 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 oh. Yep. Okay. Yep. I can get behind that. I can get behind yeah. that. Yeah, it's funny with the. It's funny because again, that's another rule that has the dials gone all over the map about where can wizards craft items over editions, and I agree. Joshua just pointed out it really does seem too high. Of if you get to eleventh, if you're a wizard of eleventh level, why are you going to spend a week of your valuable time making a read magic scroll? Yeah, right? that just yeah. doesn't. Yeah, just on the face of it, just doesn't seem big. Seem beginning reasonable. So I. Uh, dial down those requirements in my games. They were dialed down in other editions, and that makes a whole lot of sense uh, to me as well. It's it, it's funny because like you go from you know zero edition to first edition, and Gygax dialed that down to now you only need to be seventh level. You need to be seventh level before you can make a read magic scroll, um, and then that dial went down and down and down later on, which um, which could make sense. So you were so Paul. You were saying uh, you're you're getting more comfortable with buying magic items as long as they're consumable, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What about, about what? I'm, I, let me see. Just looking at this table here, yeah, that might yeah, be interesting. Yeah. What about uh, what about magic arrows? Interesting. What about, like a, what about like a plus one arrow that gets well, used up every time, anytime you shoot? Well, that, okay. Well, that's the next question: is is the arrow used up? Right? Do do arrows get consumed by firing them can i not go collect the arrow and reuse it what do you do for I that think if you look at go... yeah if you if you look in the details of most editions of dnd they said they're used up i think uh, i think the classic rule is if it hits definitely used up if it misses 50 50. interesting what do you do in general for let me step back for arrows like uh i'm i'm a first level fighter i have a dozen arrows i shoot eight of them during a fight can I go collect them at the end of the fight? I think I've been doing the same thing for mundane hours. I think I've been letting the characters uh, pick up half of the misses. Interesting. And I, st- I, Actually, I don't roll for it, but if they miss yeah. four times, I let them just go grab I, two. I do something roughly similar, which is um, I, I 50% is roughly in my head, but I do make them roll for it. I say, great, you shot eight gotcha. arrows, roll 86. Every four plus is an arrow you found gotcha. that's still whole and usable. Gotcha. Um, and gotcha. so then I've applied that to magic arrows where I say that, like, again, like, you know, if if the if the arrow didn't break, yeah, you can pluck it and reuse it. So I don't really care if it hit or not. I just care, like, you know, did it, did it break when it struck whatever it struck? 
Yeah, I'm with uh, I'm on, I'm on board with the, if it hits, then it's definitely gone. I feel like that's that feels balanced to me for yeah. magic rooms. Is that it's, reasonable? It's just a little like, more like tracking you... than I want to do. It's just a little more, yeah, yeah, more, yeah. a little okay. more, uh, you know, inventory than I want to bother keeping. That makes sense. I just want to know, like, yep, great, that's, you, that's you wrote tick marks as you fired, to, then that's that's the number of dice you roll, and let's roll to see how many they are recoverable. That's legitimate. Yeah. Um, is that, is that, does that, how that works? Now I feel like I need to go research. Like if you, if you actually strike something with an arrow, can you, can you pull it out and reuse it? Or is it gunked up and not usable anymore? Now I feel like I should know that. I mean, does anybody know that from, from, from childhood archery, I would say, of course you, yeah. they're all recoverable hundred percent. I go over to the target. I pull them out. I reuse them. I don't destroy um, my arrows. <laughs> I've done that many times. Okay, so I, I, I yeah. lose arrows in the earth, right? They sink into the earth, and I never find them after an hour of hunting. Um, okay. Well, I had if a, you're like, a poor archer, I mean, that, I mean, I, <laughs> you don't Paul, hit the target, uh, Okay, okay. Or, or Paul, wait, yeah. listen, please. Yeah. Can yeah. I speak? Yeah. Can I speak? Yeah. Um, Go for it. The, uh, <laughs> the, the last time, right, the last time I did archery, I put my target up, right, at my, frankly, dad's recommendation, right, I put my target up, and then there was a bale of hay, and it was up against the, a, a wagon, actually our hay wagon down, you know, down at my folks' place. And I, I, I shot three arrows, and it went right through the target, right through the hay bale, into the wagon, shattered to pieces. And I broke all of my arrows, right? Every single one, two, three, four, right? I have to shatter to pieces. Wow. And I walk back wow. with the bow. I go, Dad, we got to go down to the Kittery Trading Post because I'm out of arrows. That is hilarious. I've never seen that, honestly. I gotta say, from yeah. and from years of going to summer camp, uh, it was uh, and the worst case scenario was that the arrow went so deep into the hay that you had to go dig around in the hay for it. But um, yeah, maybe maybe because it was summer camp, maybe they were giving us somewhat underpowered bows, and it was less likely that yeah, that, that's that what was I was going to say. Happen. I actually have a fairly high powered hunting bow that draws. 60 or 80 pounds or something like that. And it will go, go right through many, many yeah. bales of hay, actually. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about um, target shooting. So those arrows, they probably have a flat head, right? Uh, like, or just a, just a pointed head rather than like a barbed head, which I always imagine Correct. in D&D, &D, yeah. you're probably shooting with like a big honking, you know, more more serious head that's more likely to right. either get stuck or totally. break or do something. Right. Yeah. Totally. Anyway, oh man, we're down the okay, rabbit hole. So let's say let, let's say you get half back. Okay, let's say yeah, let's yeah. say you even have magic arrows yeah. and you get you yeah. get half of them back regardless of what happened. Uh, purchasable uh, in a store? Nope, I don't allow it. No, I'm hearing no. no. Okay, no. all right. No. Okay. Let me let me ask you this one though. How about wands? Yep. Can I recharge my wand? Well, that was my next question. Okay, you should be, and I've never come up with a really great rule that I was super happy with. There was an article in uh, uh, Dragon Magazine, it was like, I think in the 80s or 90s, that, I, that I, I fell in love with because it had a specific construction technique for every single different wand in AD&D. And, uh, and it still didn't, and I guess it wound up just like, and then you just cast spells into it, and one spells, one charge. Yep. And yep. I feel like I wish there was something a little bit more esoteric for the recharging. Here's, but um, let me let me give you what I've done, which this requires more tracking. So if you want to deal with this, go for it. I I um, and I limited it to stuff like um, you know, combat wands, magic missile, fireball, etc., lightning lightning wands. This is less fun when it's like a wand of I don't know what invisibility is that a thing? I don't know. Anyway, um, usually here not. you go. Wand of magic missiles. I assume 
Every wand of magic missiles has a different number of maximum charges. It is not like they don't all hold 10 or 100 oh, okay. or whatever. They have, okay. a, they have a variable okay. number, which I roll for, and I write down, and I don't okay. tell the players. I also don't assume it has that many charges still in it when they find it. So it might have, right. you know, 15 max charges, and it currently has 7 in it. <clears throat> Great. When the players want to recharge it, they have to cast Magic Missile at the, the wand, and it sucks it in. Great, you've just put one more charge in it. If you put more charges into a wand than it can hold, it will explode and release all of them. <laughs> and you don't get to know the numbers. Wow. There you go. That's wow. what I've done. And yes, I have had a player blow themselves up and die from overcharging a magic wow. missile wand. Yeah. It was, it was a brilliant moment wow. in the game. Everybody uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. And the player was brutally <laughs> mocked. Brutally mocked for ex having the wand of magic missiles explode in his face. He's like, I'm going to push it. I'm going to. And he knew it. Wow. Like, he knew he was gambling. He was like, I, I'm pretty sure that this thing holds more than five charges. So I'm going to keep going. And it did. And it holds, hell, I can't remember what it was. It was like a dozen or something. But he kept, kept, he's like, okay, 12. Oh, it's still holding. Oh, great. We're going to go. We're going to go more. Here's charge number 13. Boom. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> now we should say i mean possibly there's some newer players that that mm -hmm. are not aware that there's a, there was a huge switch and eric uh, just reminded us in chat there's a huge switch in how wands worked in fifth edition in, in prior editions you had a fixed number of charges and once you used it the charge was just gone and initially yeah. there could be and here's eric saying wands in fifth edition recharge at dawn which is sort of boring i like that method better yeah uh, yeah, fifth edition, I think, right, they have like there. a charges per, it's basically a charges per day, right? Rather than a total right. charges right. for the lifetime of the wand, it's the right. charges per day. Kind right, of. right. And it's, and, and to my, you know, to my, uh, you know, historical understanding, it's a really small number. Uh, in, in original D&D, wands started off with a hundred charges, a hundred <laughs> charges over its lifetime, uh, no more, no less. And in fifth edition, now it's like, what, five? It might be like three right. or Again, five it's, it's, or something like that on the day because it's a per day because it's a per day yeah thing, right 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 i want right. there to be a good number of charges i think i feel like 100 is too much but i, I feel like I you know you know i'm i again like i like to variable i like i like to randomize it so i might just toss a couple d20s like two or three d20 that's right. how many <laughs> right 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 I can see. I mean, so um, like I like, frankly, like the um, the price, uh, the, the construction price list in original D&D that we were looking before, uh, if I crunch numbers on that, like I find that like about 20 seems about right. So about 20 charges winds up being about the same value as if you made 20 scrolls mm -hmm. under that pricing mm -hmm. system. So I, I generally go for 20 in a wand. And I think that's the same thing they did in BX, I believe. Uh, that mold they did. So, to, and you know, in 20 feels like a number that you're going to keep track of. Like if I have like, oh, now I've got 86, now I've got 85, now I've got 84. That doesn't seem like there's any pressure around yeah. that. But like 20 yeah. and yeah. I'm getting through the teens and then I'm in the single digits, that's, then you're keeping track of that. Yeah. Um, yep. So I agree 100 is too much. And um, if you find one, certainly I'll roll, I'll roll a d20, frankly, to see how many is left in it right now. Um, Great. I would not. Great. I would not want people going out and buying wands, right? So I, I would definitely yeah. not want to have people go out and purchase wands from a from a Harry Potter style wand store. Yeah, right. Um, now I have allowed. I have allowed them to pay gotcha. again since I have this crazy recharging rule. Uh, I have allowed them to pay NPC magic users to do the recharging for them. 
but it's expensive yeah, that makes sense. because it's risky. Right. <laughs> yep. That makes sense. Yep. Right. Yeah. And uh, Eric's reminding us that in fifth edition, uh, now the rule is that wands have uh, seven charges on the day and staves have 10. Staves have always had more by either 50% or 100. So that's, well, then, that's then you get to it's like the multifunction staff that has like three different effects right. and then it takes yep. one charge to do this and two charges to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is fun. I like that. That's fun stuff. But uh, yes, yeah. yes. <clears throat> and I'll say that our friend uh, Max had one of those in the last D&D game I ran for a one session and had the, the, the top end staff of power, which is the most the most powerful staff in the game. And uh, in, I believe, the very first encounter room, he ran into a trap that had a smashing pillar and smashed <laughs> his character, cracked the staff of power, blew him up, <laughs> and uh, had to go find a new character. Exploding magic items are just wonderful. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. Uh, magic swords. Okay, so I'm just I'm going to mm -hmm. top off. So what's your feeling about ma a magic you know, plus one sword? Can you go say I need to buy a plus one sword here? It's Wednesday. Nope. nope. Absolutely not. Nope. Still super valuable. Frankly, and you get to that point in the game where the characters are getting higher level and they start getting <laughs> fancier magic weapons, right? So now my fighters got. My fighter had a plus one sword at level three, but now he's level seven and he's got a, you know, plus right. two flame tongue or whatever. And he's yeah. still carrying around that plus one sword as a backup or whatever. Yep. Um, but yep. now we're starting to face, now we're level seven, we're starting to face off monsters that require magic. And so like having those crappy plus one weapons is important because they will start trading them off. Oh, let me give it to the thief. Let me give it to the, let me give this, you know. To, not a sword, but maybe a, a dagger to the to the a plus one dagger to the wizard, so he's got something, yeah. <laughs> right? So that when we uh, when we face something that requires magic, at least everybody has something. Because I do like that moment, frankly, in the power curve of the game. I'd like the moment where they start facing off yeah. on things that require magic to hit, and only like two or three of the players can actually do anything about it. I agree. Any other players are going, oh no, oh no, we don't have enough magic weapons. Right, I love that. Right, I love that. It's an, and and what do they do at that point? Right, that 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 tends to be a point where suddenly every they get create they have to get creative. They have to right? get creative. You're not right. gonna, they, You're nobody right. going to want to stand around and just go like literally do nothing. So they're going to do I try to trip it? Do I try to tie it up with a rope? Do I yep. blind it yep. with a sack? Yep. yep. Right? And then pretty much after that fight is when they then the players now have a new goal of oh crap we need to get more magic weapons, right? So let's start figuring out where we can go to find more magic weapons right. and. And I love, I, you know, like I said, anytime there's a, the players identify a need, it's a chance to uh, introduce adventure. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, try <laughs> if, I, I try to pivot things into into more adventures, and that's what the game should be about. That's I agree. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. All right. There you go. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> we, we, that one we settled, Paul. That one we settled. Magic sh general magic shops, no. Some potions, some scrolls, hiring people to recharge your wands. That's that's fair game. Um, if, you know, you know, maybe this, maybe this fifth edition idea of a secret, uh, auction house that actually becomes itself an adventure, maybe something got stolen by the thieves. I can see that. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, there's, a, there's a, so many things you could do with that. And, and like my, my head immediately went to now, like if you generally know this magic item is worth a thousand gold pieces, well, what if someone comes to that auction who's willing to pay much, much more, right? 
let's yeah. introduce a little variability into the yeah. pricing and then let's like i think that's an interesting session where the players just get ridiculously let's see how high i can upbid them right and then either <laughs> they're going to pay way too much money for this magic item or they're going to get outbid by this person and then they're going to have to find out well why is this person so interested in this magic item and what's going you know, on it's funny there because i i've seen that in real life and the you know like a thought that was running around in my head for this particular topic is you know as 21st century americans do is it possible that we have some amount of blinders on in our capitalist society that everything has a price so many of us and you know frank menser says it in beck me and the third edition rules basically says many of us wind up saying well clearly for the right price anything is purchasable Mm. And like in first edition, Gygax even had prices for artifacts, right? So unique, one of a kind artifacts, like the throne of the gods, mm -hmm. 50,000 gold pieces or whatever it is. <laughs> right? yeah. And yeah. Um, even though it's an immovable part of a mountain, I don't know, whatever, but nonetheless, <laughs> you felt there had to be a price. And yep. so, um, you know, for our current culture, the, you know, I've been explicitly told by authority figures in my life, like, ultimately, everything has a price. And I have seen, you know, the things that I the things that I've seen in in the farming community is someone raises like a beloved pair of working oxen, right? And they've worked mm. with them, and they're kind of in, you know, they're kind of pets, and they're kind of partners. And someone comes on the the farm and says, "I want to. Those are that's a great team of oxen. I want to buy them." And the person says, "They are not for sale." And the the stranger says, "Everything has a price. You name you name the price, and I'm going to pay it." And person hmm. A says, you know, quotes uh, what seems to them a ridiculously high price. And person B says, yep, you got it. Here's a check. And they drive <laughs> off with your eyes. Right. 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 And so it's, it's you know, it, so I, I, it, the, the discussion today made me think about are there, are there, are there other cultures where that's not, where that wouldn't happen? Right. Are there things mm. in the world where people just absolutely would not allow it to be purchased? And I'm thinking like, I don't know, like a national park? Or something like that. Mm. The, 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 the Taj Mahal would that you know? Are there things that that are just simply off limits that a person would never ever think about forking you know accepting money to fork it over? Um, and maybe that should be maybe that should be part of our non-American, non-colonial fantasy world as well. Hmm. 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 I'm probably there's probably going to be angry comments about what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's reasonable. I think I think it's it's interesting because it's 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 inspiring in me thoughts of like well, what what is you know take into consideration who they're buying it from and what do they want right right, right. and and yeah may, maybe they're just like this is my beloved why I would never part mm -hmm. with this this is like yep. you know you know whatever it's a, it's an intelligent sword that I have a relationship with like I, I can't sell my children right, right. <laughs> but right. um. But on the other hand, like, what if it's somebody who wants a very specific price that can't be counted gold, right? What if it's somebody who wants something, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of something truly terrible here and, uh, and not coming up with a great, uh, you know, a great option. But like, you know, yeah, yeah, I need you to go do this favor for me or I need you to go on this quest. I need you to assassinate my cousin so I can, I can ascend to the throne. <laughs> Right there, you go. There you right. go. Yeah, something, something pretty morally <laughs> reprehensible. <laughs> what are you willing to do for this thing? That's right. Great. Yeah. That's exactly. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, so I agree. Right, maybe, not, maybe not just maybe just not not cash, but something that turns into an event. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, we have just a few minutes left here, Dan. Do you have any final thoughts on the buying and selling of magic items? This is one that maybe is uh, we're unusually unusually of like mind on Paul. Hmm. So hmm. I I also am pretty comfortable with some potions and scrolls uh, being hmm. sold or um, you know a wizard giving a service of a single spell and uh, non um, destruct non consumable higher powered magic items. I would be very I would be fairly uncomfortable having a magic shop in my dungeon that that stuff was just yeah. being forked over all the time. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. I. I I don't mind, you know, I don't mind having some, you know, some NPCs demand them as tolls. So if I have a wizard, a landowning wizard that says, you got to give me a magic item to get across my territory, I'm fine mm -hmm. with that. But I still don't want to put a, I still don't want to put a, a dollar sign on what that cost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm going to stand by my actual original statement here, Dan, which is I just I simply never, ever do it, except when I do. <laughs> Paul, you contain multitudes. Viewers, <laughs> uh, do you have any, any feedback for us? Uh, any uh, further uh, interesting angles? Especially I'm curious about edge cases of, uh, like we were talking about, rechargeable yeah. wands. Or are there right. other edge cases where you think like, yeah, but this case. Um, I would love to hear about those or other um, ways that buying and selling magic items have impacted your campaign. Uh, leave us some comments in the video, please. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and perhaps that will spawn off additional conversation down the road. Yeah, definitely. And if you're new to the show, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, on sites like YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and also GitHub, if you're a coder. Um, and we have the handle Wandering DMs on all of the sites. So please look for us there and follow and get updates on upcoming shows. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can get those podcasts at our website at wanderingdms.com. Uh, if you've been watching, they've been pouring out recently. Uh, we, they, we had got a little backlog of them, but they're coming through now. So uh, go check it out there. Or uh, you can also get our podcast at sites like Google Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify. If you are listening to this show right now on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of those sites find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering DM shows. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs, and you're going to see our three different tiers there. We have discounts on merch. We have access to our private Discord server, all kinds of great discussions happening there, monthly behind the scenes video polls and surveys, and after party chat, like we'll have uh, this Sunday in about 10 minutes, we'll be on Discord. Um, upcoming shows, Paul should be back uh, tomorrow night, Monday, for more 10 Dead Rats. Uh, Isabel and I are working real hard trying to find a Saturday that we can have a Book of War show that she's not work working on a movie here in New York or something like that, which has been happening quite a lot. So hopefully, maybe this week, if not the next week, but don't forget, of course, we are live every Sunday here at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So we hope you'll join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.